This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. First of all, before I begin, I want to thank um, Chazak, which is a very, very impressive organization, um, constantly amazing me by the extent of their programming, how involved it is. Um, it's a very, very impressive. Yaniv is uh, Yaniv and company are very, really worthy of tremendous appreciation. I also want to thank Beth Gavriel for hosting it. This is being live-streamed around the world by TorahAnytime.com. Torah Anytime began as a very little, small website. And I, about four years ago, when people started saying to me, aren't you on Torah Anytime? And I, yeah, but there's a Shmuz site. Don't you even know? They don't even know about the Shmuz site because Torah Anytime became such a major force in the world. It eclipsed it, and it's a tremendous, tremendous uh, organization. You should support it. You should use it. I also mentioned that this uh, is sponsored by the Nazara family, Lid Nishmas Estebasara. Animamin Bemuna Shalema, I acknowledge, I recognize as a truth. This is solid, it's here, it exists. Gravity is real. We don't question gravity, we don't question heat rising. There are 13 animamins that are supposed to be to us immutable laws, absolutely understood. One of the animamins is animamin b'munshalema b'via samashiach. The Mashiach will come. Even though he may delay, nevertheless, I will wait. And this is one of the basics of our entire Emunah system. We say it over and over in davening. We say it in benching. Over and over we mention this fact, Mashiach, Mashiach, Mashiach. And here's the question. What does it mean? What will life be like when Mashiach comes? Now some of the things we're a little bit aware of, the Rambam tells us, there'll be peace, we'll all be in Eretzstrol, and all live in Israel, base Migdash will be rebuilt. But what will life be like for you and I? What will our day-to-day, nine-to-five, what will our feelings be like? What will we experience in that time? And if you give me the typical kind of glassy-eyed look, like who knows, who could know what, what, what I'm going to feel like when Mashiach comes, I'd like to share with you one simple observation. Imagine you're on a street corner, and it's February. And you see a man shivering, all dressed up with three large luggages, three large suitcases. And you say to him, what are you doing? I'm waiting for a cab. Why? I'm going on a trip. Oh, you're going on a trip? Where are you going? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I'm going on a trip. Where? I don't know. Fellow, what would you pack in the suitcases? How do you know to take shorts or long pants? The tropics or Siberia? How do you know what to pack? I don't know. I'm going. So I just, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. Obviously, it never happened. Why? Because before you go on a trip, you're going to pack your suitcases, you know where you're headed, and you pack appropriately. And if you haven't spent some serious time about thinking about what it's going to be like, what is life going to be like when Mashiach comes? What will I feel? What will my conversations be about? What will my life be like? If you haven't spent some serious time thinking about that, and it's very difficult to say, it's literally right there like gravity. It's literally right there like heat rising. 
So I'd like to spend a little time today on this exact issue. What will it be like? What will we experience? What will we feel? What will life be like when Mashiach comes? And to shed some light on the subject, let's begin with an interesting Gemara. The Gemara Sukkah tells us, Lassid Lovo, when Mashiach comes, there will be a tremendous, tremendous eulogy. Family by family, the entire world gathered, crying bitter, bitter tears. The type of eulogy that a man says over his only son that dies, that will be the tremendous tear-drenching eulogy that will be said, and the whole world will hear it. And the Gemara explains what is this eulogy about. This eulogy is about the Yitzhara, about the Sutton. Because when Mashiach comes, his job is over, he's no longer in existence, and it's a bitter, bitter eulogy with tears pouring from everyone's cheeks. Ask the Gemara, wait a minute. If the Yitzhara is nishchat, if he's killed, if he's destroyed, if he's no longer in existence, this should be a party. People should be dancing in the streets. What are you crying? What are you saying? A eulogy with tears. What? Our answers, this is exactly what Rabbi Yehuda said. In the days to come, in Mashiach time, Hashem will bring the Yitzhara. And Hashem will shecht the Yitzhara. In front of the tzaddikim and in front of the rishayim. To the tzaddikim, the Yitzhara will appear like a mighty, mighty mountain. A powerful pillar, a huge force. And to the Rishayim, to the wicked people, he'll appear like a thin thread, a hair. Each group cries. The Tzaddikim cry because they say, my goodness, look at the size of that mountain. How could we have been covished? How could we have conquered it? How could we have ever withstood? And they cry. The Rishayim cry because they see the Yitzhara as a thin, thin thread, as a mere here. And they cry bitter tears. How did we fall prey to this little nothing? And then the Gemara explains that is the Yitzhara. It starts as a thin thread, like a spider web. But if you give in time after time after time, it grows thicker and thicker, thread after thread after thread, until you're tied to that chair with a rope that's so powerful that a cow couldn't break it. And that's the Gemara. And I'd like to analyze and see if we can understand from this Gemara what it's sharing with us. And let's start with the following. Why are the Rishayim crying? So if you'd like to understand why the Rishayim are crying, I'd like to share with you an interesting story. I was invited to speak at a... I was invited for Shabbos to the Minyan Shalanu Shabbaton. What is the Minyan Shalanu? It is in Lakewood, an organization for the youth who are no longer at risk. They're past that point. And it happens to be a phenomenal organization in the sense that they really, really take care of these fellows. And this was a Shabbaton for the boys, for the guys, and uh, I was invited to be the speaker. And I was very, very interested in being there because whatever I could do was my schus, my honor. In any case, my slot was Shabbos afternoon. And you have to imagine, these guys are not old. We're talking about 15, 16 years old. The oldest may be 17. And I had them in a room, and basically for about 15, 20 minutes maybe, I gave them what I considered a rousing, dramatic schmooze. And then I opened the floor to questions. And the questions be- 
came left, right, and center. Every imaginable issue. And if you ever listen to the Shmuz, you know that I don't shy away from issues. And I dealt with them head on. If you could imagine the gamut, the full gamut, every, probably every corner, every issue you could ever think of. And then one of the fellows, I think he was 15 years old, asked the question that I could not answer. But when I share with you what the question is, you'll see it wasn't the philosophical depth of the question. It wasn't the amkas of the question. I didn't have words in his language to answer the question. The question was, is it better to get high on marijuana or on whiskey? That was the question. I'm going to get high. Am I better off getting high on alcohol or on marijuana? Happens to be, there was a mentor in the room, about 27, 28 years old. He had been through the same sort of journey that these fellows had been through. And I knew very well his history because we had spoken before. And I asked him to answer this question. I turned this question over to him and I said, I want you to answer this question. So he turns to these fellows and he says, I'll tell you something. Alcoholism is a bitter, bitter disease. And when you're addicted to alcohol, to get off it is horrific. It's horrible. But you should just know, I'm involved with fellows all the time. And I've gone to many, many funerals in our community. Not a single one of them was from alcohol overdose. Every one of them was a drug-related issue. And I'll explain to you why. Alcohol is addictive, but it takes a long time. You have to drink an awful lot for a long time, two years, three years, to really get addicted. It's very unlikely that any of you fellows will do that. But I'd also like to share with you that it's easy as pie to get addicted to drugs. It happened to me. And then he went on to tell a few of the war stories that he had been directly involved in. He describes a fellow who's so desperately craving drugs, even though he can no longer get high. He needs the drugs, desperately needs the drugs, but no longer enjoys anything from it. And this meant that this fellow's called to this fellow's basement, and he finds this young man, 15 years of age, on the floor naked in a puddle of his own vomit. And he describes the most terrific scenes you could ever imagine, one after another after another. And in the final scene, he describes that a 15-year-old boy told him, that's it, I hit bottom, I got to get out, you got to save me, I have to go detox, I got to go to rehab. And his mentor said to him, I would love to do that, but here's the problem. Rule number one, if you enter a rehab facility, you have to be sober. They won't take you when you're high. You have to be straight. So they made a plan. The last time he was going to get high was that afternoon. The mentor was going to pick him up in the morning, but then he'd be, be out of his system, and he was going to take him to detox, going to take him to rehab. Okay? This mentor shows up in the morning, and this boy is high as a kite. And the mentor didn't get it. He's 15 years of age. He doesn't have money. He doesn't have a car. How did he get that much drugs that he's so high, I don't get it? And he asked around. And would you like to know the answer? The boy started getting withdrawal symptoms that evening, about 9 o'clock. 
And when you start withdrawing, you start trembling and shaking, and your whole body goes hot and cold and shivering. And by 11 o'clock, he was climbing out of his skin, and he was going insane. And he went to his mother and on his knees begged, please, mommy, please, please, please. And he begged and he begged and he begged. And a from woman living in Lakewood took her car, took her son with her money, drove him to buy drugs because she couldn't stand seeing the pain that he was in. Well, after this mentor was done telling these war stories, we had been together, this group, I and him, for about two hours. And I walked out of that room and I realized something. We discussed a tremendous amount of issues about Ashkafa and Musr, why Hashem created us, and many, many things. I then walked to the bathroom, closed the door, began crying and couldn't stop crying. Would you like to know why? Because I knew it was only a question of how many of these young men would be the next statistic, the next funeral. But you say, what do you mean? They heard it from the horse's mouth. Here was a guy who was addicted to drugs himself, describing the agony, describing the horrors. How is it possible that any young man in that room would ever get involved in drugs? How is it shayach? The answer really is quite simple. (laughs) I know when to stop. I know where to go. I know how to get high without getting stuck and everyone has an answer and everyone believes that they're smarter than the system and they're not would you like to know the greatest cause of sin let's say I were to ask you what is the single greatest cause of sin in mankind so people will give you a long list temptation honor desire Money, the love of money. You get a long, long list of things that are the cause of sin. Would you like to know what is actually the greatest cause of sin? The greatest cause of sin is stupidity. You see, Hashem gave us every mitzvah for our benefit. It helps me here and obviously helps me in the world to come. Every avera, every sin damages me here and certainly damages me in the world to come. When you live a Torah lifestyle, you're happy, fulfilled, you're living a beautiful life. And any Avera that you're engaged in, any Avera that you do, brings you misery, unhappiness. And just ask somebody, just ask somebody who got involved in whatever it may be, two years after, three years after, tell me, would you head down this path again? Now that you're divorced, now that your boss fired you, now that whatever the consequences... In a million years, if I knew the pain that I'd have to suffer for it back then, I never would have touched it, I would have ran away, I never would have been involved in this, I never would have done this. The single greatest cause of sin is stupidity. Would you like to know why the Rishayim cry? It's really quite simple. When Mashiach comes like the sun at midday, blazing strong... Every human being gets it. Every human being sees Hashem right here. Every human being knows why we were put on the planet. Every human being has wisdom and understanding. <clears throat> the entire world is filled with knowledge of Hashem. But everyone, every Gentile, every Jew, <clears throat> from the lowest to the greatest, everyone sees Hashem right here. And in that moment of clarity, 
Everyone also understands the value of every mitzvah, and the danger, the damage of every sin. And what the Rishayim see is what a fool I was. Look what I bought. A tiny little thread. It was nothing. It was nothing. Ask a guy after he smoked his first cigarette, how difficult is it to quit? <laughs> difficult? Nothing. Ask a fellow who's been smoking 10 years, two packs a day, how easy is it to quit? Very, very difficult. You'll meet many, many people today who are victims. <clears throat> victims. Everyone is a victim. <clears throat> Most of the time, they're victims of their own stupidity. You acquired a habit. You learned <clears throat> to do something. You started a path. You didn't realize it then. You didn't perceive where you were headed. But it was your choice. And now it's true. <clears throat> It'll take powerful, powerful armies to extract you from what you've gotten yourself into. And ladies and gentlemen, this is not about drug abuse over here. This is about habits, the way we deal with people, the way we think, the way we act. This is about us. We create these habits. We create these mindsets. We create these perceptions and they foster more and more and more of the same until we see the whole world that way. And if I'm jealous, I'm jealous, and more jealous, and more jealous, and I'm constantly needing more and more, and if my temper is my issue, it flares up once and again and again and again, and afterwards I'm a victim. I can't help myself. And by the way, it may be true. <clears throat> if you've been losing your temper fiercely for a good number of years, it would take Shimshon Hagibor to hold yourself back. And you have to really, really apply yourself. You have to really follow a program. You have to really, really focus on it. And if you really do, it slowly, slowly starts to recede. But until you do that, it's true. You're a victim. A victim of your own stupidity. And if you'd like to know why they're showing cry, it's because then, when it's over, when it's too late, they get it. I got divorced. Why? Because I was a jerk, a selfish, self-centered lout. That's why. I deal with couples all the time. I never once, never once heard a guy or a woman say, the reason we're having trouble is because I'm self-centered. I'm a brat. I'm only interested in me. Never once. Him, her, him, her. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I can't tell you how many times I said to my wife, they're a match made in heaven. They're made for each other, living in Gehenna, because they're destroying themselves. And if you don't work on your issues, you don't work on your stuff, you'll walk away clean as a victim. I married a shrew. The guy I married was an abuser. You have any guy, any single divorce case, every guy is abusive. And I'd like to share with you, I've been involved in many such cases. And it's true, he's abusive. And you know why? Because she flies on a broom at night. And if you had to live with her, believe me, you'd do a lot more. A guy in court read a letter from his son because the lawyer for the woman was accusing him of being controlling and abusive and raising his voice and screaming and yelling. His mature son who was in base Medrash wrote a letter that the judge read in court it said, it is true, my father often raised his voice to my mother. But I never once in all of my years heard my father raise his voice until she was screaming at him endlessly. Oh, he's abusive. Oh, 
But we don't see it. <clears throat> We're victims. All of us are nebuch, poor victims. And my parents brought me up wrong. And my family did so much bad to me. And I suffer so much. I'm nebuch, a victim. Yeah, you are. You are a victim as everyone else is a victim. And you don't see it. And you won't see it until that one moment of absolute brilliant clarity when you'll get it. I was a victim of stupidity. I gave in, I caved, I didn't battle the battle, didn't fight the fight, and I blew it. So I guess it's rather obvious why the Rishayim cry. But why do the Sadiqim cry? The Sadiqim are the champions. They're the ones who succeeded. They reached the greatest levels. They reached the greatest heights. And they should be in their ultimate glory dancing a jig. Why are they crying bitter tears? And Rashi's bothered by that question. And Rashi says, do you know why they cry? Because at that moment, they also get a moment of clarity. And they look back at their lifetime and they see the amount of tsar, the amount of pain that the sultan, that the Atara caused them. And they remember it all. And they see all of the pain that he caused them their whole life. And they begin crying and crying bitter, bitter tears because all of the memories come flooding back to them. Now, if you think about that Rashi, it should be rather difficult to understand. Why? Because if you are the tzaddik, that means you caught the Yetzirah before he got too far. You caught him at cigarette one. You caught him when it was just a thin little spider web. You realized there's a danger. You saw the end game. You weren't a fool. And you stopped him. How much sorrow could he cause you? How much sorrow could he cause you? You stopped him right away. You stopped him when he was just that little tiny thread. How much trouble could that be? Would you like to know the answer to this question? I grew up amongst children of Holocaust survivors. Many of my friends, if not most of them, their parents, either one had been in the camps, sometimes two. My father was born in Berlin. Thank God he didn't end in the camps. He was in England during the war years. But many, many of my friends had Holocaust survivors, and I had a chance to see them, know them personally. And what they went through was indescribable. One fellow, when he was 12 years old, went away to another friend's house to sleep, and he made a discovery. What was his discovery? That night, he slept the whole night. And the mother of the house didn't wake up screaming with nightmares. He slept the whole night for the first time in his life. Because until that time, every single night, he would hear his mother screeching with the nightmares that woke him up. He thought that all mommies do that. It was only when he went to a friend of his house and wasn't woken up that he realized, uh-uh, not all mommies do that. So I'd like to share with you, if you went through the Holocaust, if you went through the camps, and you went through Gehenna, you went through an awful lot. And I'd also like to share with you that having been in these homes, very, very close with a lot of these families, I'd like to share with you that they were vastly happier than the people I see today. These people who lived through indescribable horrors and still had the scars had greater simcha sachayim, more joy, more enjoyment of life than the average person does today. And I'd like to share with you one of the great 
anomalies, one of the great pillars of life. Today, we enjoy greater wealth, luxuries, and opulence than any other generation. There has never been a time in history when there's been this much available for the average man. Luxuries, pleasures, wealth that kings of yesteryear could not imagine. If you take a king living 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and compare it to the average person today's life, there's no comparison. We enjoy far more. We have every imaginable luxury. We have tremendous, tremendous wealth. And if you compare our life to people living even 100 years ago, you see we're wealthy beyond comparison. And yet... There has never been a needier generation. And there has never been a poorer generation. And everyone needs and needs and needs. And no one has enough money. And you have to ask yourself the question, I don't get it. You have so much money. You live in such beautiful homes. You drive such nice cars. So many racks and racks of clothing. What in the world is your problem? And I'd like to share with you what in the world is your problem. Today, we are all so wealthy that anything that we actually need, we would easily have. No question about it. A need is something that you need to survive. If we actually needed something, every one of us would have it. And so you should quickly realize that marketing, advertisement should be dead. We're all so wealthy that anything we needed, we'd already have. So obviously, whatever we need, we have. There's no more marketplace. There's no more Amazon. There's no more Best Buy. There's nothing. You're done. Anything I have, anything I need, I have. And what in the world will all of these industries do? So if you study advertising, you'll understand exactly what they do. Advertising is not there to sell you something that you need. If you needed it, you would have it already. Advertising is there selling you the need. You didn't even know about this. You weren't even aware about this. But now you need it. Now you have to have it. Your life is not complete until you get it. And if you see it time after time after time, you'll find an interesting phenomena. There are new styles. There are new ways, new approaches. I need the next. I need the next. But it's not something that I want to have. It's not an extra. It's a bona fide need. And you may say, isn't that ridiculous, Rabbi? Come on. (laughs) That doesn't really work in the real world. It doesn't really happen to mature people like us. I have, Baruch Hashem, four daughters and one wife. Um, I've never seen a woman yet who has enough clothes. Matter of fact, I don't have a thing to wear. I mean, racks and racks of dresses and blouses. I I don't have a thing to wear. Not a thing to wear. Okay. My watch. My watch wasn't good enough. Timex. The Timex watch, very fancy watch. You could get it also in Walmart for foot. This one was better than the $39 one. I was splurged, I went to $49. It's a, um, you know why I splurged for this one? Because I was a little jealous. The guy next to me in Shul had a $20,000 watch. $20,000? Ooh. What does his watch do that mine doesn't? Is it more accurate? Uh-uh. For $99, you can get a radio frequency watch that's tuned to atomic time at Greenwich Village, that's accurate to the one-hundredth of a second. His how do you pronounce it? Whatever it is. His $20,000 watch ain't accurate to the second. Well, his watch must have more gizmos and gadgets. Wrong again. 
My $29 Timex had a chronograph that was accurate to the hundredth of a second. <clears throat> it had a, you know, the stopwatch, the timers, uh, what else did it do? It told me how many minutes to put the microwave in if I'm cooking an egg. Anything but drive the car for me. What in the world does his $20,000 watch do for him that mine doesn't? It does one thing. <laughs> Did you notice? Did you notice? Did you notice? Now I want to teach you some musr. Would you like to know how to identify the Rolex? How do you know? Is it $18,000 or did he buy a knockoff on the street for 100 bucks? How do you know? There's one way to tell. Watch the second hand. If it jumps, it's real. If it's smooth moving, it's a knockoff. I got it. $18,000 for the... <laughs> got it. Got it. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, I do something that most Americans do. I wait <clears throat> in traffic. But to me, it's a source of tremendous inspiration and pleasure. Because I can't tell you how many times I'm on the West Side Highway, stuck, bumper to bumper, next to the <clears throat> Bentley... The Jaguar, 0 to 60 in 0.0300 seconds. You're not doing 0 to nothing. The guy in front of you you're going to smash into. He's stuck in traffic the same way I am. And he doesn't drive on a racetrack, folks. And the Bentley that costs $250,000 and upwards does not do a single thing that my Toyota Camry doesn't do. My Toyota Camry has stereo sound. I have a graphic equalizer because it was standard equipment. And I have air suspensions so I don't bounce around. And I have every luxury that your Bentley has. I got it, but my car is paid off. Oh. Paid off? You paid off. Pa- paid, off. paid off. I own it. I own And I didn't go into hot. Oh, my God. How are we going to pay the payment? By the way, if you ever want a little muscle, just, just try this little trick at home. <clears throat> Watch the car as it pulls out of the showroom. And make it the Jag or the Bentley or whatever it may be. Or make it, I don't care, what your, your Lexus, whatever you're into. And just know that as he crosses over that little driveway, you know, from the inside the showroom to outside the showroom, he just lost $7,000. Just like that. The car went from brand new to used. Seven grand. But don't worry about it, because every minute that it's sitting in his driveway, it's ticking down. It costs roughly a BMW, um, the 7 class costs, I once did the math, the BMW 7 class loses value $5,000 a year. If you do the math and you realize what it's costing you per hour to own the darn thing, you wouldn't sleep. So why in the world do people do this? Why did you buy it? Because its status, its prestige, was sold a bill of goods. And the only reason I focus on this is because this is easy to see. Would you like to look around and see how much time people spend on the most destructive, self-damaging thinking? Everything from, I'm a loser and I'm worthless. And people get into all types of patterns of thinking that literally destroys themselves. And oftentimes, again, they can't help it. Oftentimes, they can't prevent it. But they get into these patterns, and they get into these thought processes. And unfortunately, I deal with a lot of people who have tsaris, who have trouble, who have problems. 
And if I would share with you what it's like to be inside the mind of a person who's suffering anxiety. How about a guy who can't daven in shul? Because he doesn't know where to put himself. I'm too close to this guy, too close to that guy, too close to the helmet, too close... How about anxiety that doesn't allow you to get out of bed in the morning because you're afraid of everything and anything? How about OCD? OCD is a horrific, horrible disease. You ever speak to someone with depression? You ever speak to someone with issues and troubles, problems? My friends, if you look around the people we live amongst, you will see so much destructive thinking and so many damaged, unwholesome people and so much trouble that they're suffering with. And I'd like to share with you one simple observation. I don't think oftentimes it's curable instantly, but one thing I guarantee, when Mashiach comes, all of those issues disappear. You see, anxiety doesn't exist because I see Hashem right here. I get it. I understand it. Fears, troubles, worries dissipate. All of the problems that I had, I don't make enough money. I need more. I just don't make enough. You're making $200,000 a year. It's not enough. You know why? Because I need more and more and more. When Mashiach comes, the entire world gets it. We wake up, we understand the purpose of creation. We understand why we're here. And all of those values that people considered so important, so significant, becomes completely irrelevant. Every human being on the face of the planet will be filled with one desire to be close to Hashem, to reach Emes, to grow. And if you'd like to understand what will change, everything will change. But if you'd like to understand why the tzaddikim cry, it's because at that moment in time, they look back and see that which we could never see. They see the pervasiveness of troubles and issues and worries, and a sudden constantly there bothering them and troubling them and trying to get them to slip up and trip up. And if you ever speak to a person who has issues and problems, you'll see it's unending. But folks, all of us have issues and problems. All of us have things going on in our own mind, in our own family, in our own psyche, and we don't see it, we don't realize it. Whether it's, I need more money, or I need more honor, whether it's, I need this type of woman, I need this type of man, I'm not happy because of this, I'm not happy because of that. Do you know that every human being I know has an ending to the sentence? You ready for the sentence? I'll be happy when. I'll be happy when. And everyone I've ever met fills in that sentence with something, usually a material object. I'll be happy when I'm rich. I'll be happy when I get the big mansion. I'll be happy when I get the corner office. I'll be happy when my wife stops nagging me already. White bread, brown bread, who cares? What difference does it make? Stay or not stay? Leave me alone, woman. And every human being has an ending to that sentence. And the problem is that we believe it. We buy into it. And if you listen to the tapes in our brains, we're all victims, we're all suffering, and we do suffer. But the suffering is such foolishness. What the tzaddikim realize at that moment is they get it. They see how much the sultan was on the scene 24-7, 364, attempting to ruin their lives. And Rabosai, my friends, listen to what I'm saying. These are the tzaddikim. 
I don't know if we're in that group. I hope we're at least in amongst the Bainanim. We're <clears throat> talking about the greats of the greats. At that moment of time, they look back on their lives and they see the amount of torture and trouble <clears throat> that the Sultan was giving them on a daily basis and they cry bitter tears. How much more so us? We don't see it now. What do you mean? I'm, I'm living life. Baruch Hashem, things are good. I'm okay, I make a living and things are right. I'm not, I'm not bothered by OCD and anxiety, depression. I don't got those things, Rabbi. I don't know what you're talking about. First of all, many do. But if you don't, and your daughter isn't anorexic, or she's not bloomic, and she's not on antidepressants, and your wife isn't suicidal, let's even say that's true. And let's even say you're happy. I'd like to share with you, you don't know what happiness is. About two weeks ago, I walked into one of the most beautiful homes I've ever seen. Muncie has big, large, beautiful homes. This one outclassed, it was gorgeous, set back on a hill, really way up there. The property itself was huge, a full basketball court on the property. Next to the full, I mean full, full court, I mean two baskets. Next to that was a volleyball court. Next to that was the pool. And in the center is this palatial manor. I mean, it's gorgeous. And you walk in and you see floor to ceiling straight up. And the house was huge. And no expense was spared. You walk into the kitchen. It's a kitchen, I don't know women say, a kitchen to die for. I don't think a kitchen's worth dying for, but all right, whatever, okay. It was a kitchen to die for. And better yet, the basement was the full size of the house, high ceiling, all opened up with sports equipment. You had all the weightlifting and the Nautilus. There was a sauna in the basement, a sauna. This doesn't get better. Anyway, the person who opened the door was a young man. I don't know, 20, 21, 22 maybe. And he opened the door and he let me in. And as I'm walking around this gorgeous, gorgeous house... I can't help but comment at a certain point, wow, this place is gorgeous. And he says to me, I guess it does the job. What? This is the most gorgeous home. They don't, in Hollywood, they don't have these kind of houses. This is, what are you talking about? Would you like to know what he was talking about? It's really very simple. After rehab, you got to go to a sober house. You can't yet go into the regular society because likely you'll be triggered and you'll end up back on drugs. So someone very generously set aside a house, paid the rent for it, a gorgeous house, and set it up as a sober house. And there are 12 young men living in it, all from, by the way. And they live in this gorgeous house. And you open the refrigerator, stocked with the most delicious food you can imagine. And it's, a, it's an incredible setup. They have a fireplace in the back. What could be better? How could the guy not be having a good time? The answer is very simple. When you come out of rehab, you are so burnt out. You are so focused on just one thing, getting my life back, not being a slave, not falling back into that same trap. And you're so burnt out and so focused on something called existence that you cannot enjoy the palatial manor, nor the basketball court, nor the pool, nor the volleyball, because you're just barely living. Most people I know are just barely living. How many people do you know who eat their food and actually enjoy it? 
who can tell you what it tastes like, who can really focus on, and I'm busy, I'm running, I'm doing that. If you actually sit down to eat a meal, how many people actually are awake, alert, and enjoying life? And I'd like to share with you one very, very important observation. Life as you see it today is not the way it's supposed to be. Life as we experience it today is not the way Hashem wanted it to be. For whatever which reason, and it's not time to get into the philosophical pieces of it, but the bottom line is we are in Gullus. We are in exile, and that doesn't mean a foreign land. It means a foreign way of life, a foreign way of thinking. We are so lost in this long, bitter Gullus that we forgot what it means to be a Jew. We forgot what it means to be a human being. We forgot what happiness means. We forgot what fulfillment means. And if you're not sure that I'm right, just look about the world. The amount of unrest, and I mean divorce and mental illness and so many problems and issues and troubles. And all of it wasn't supposed to be. Hashem created the human for one reason, because Hashem is a mative. Hashem is a giver. And Hashem made a glorious, beautiful world with colors and aromas, textures. Smell a flower one day and say to yourself, I get it. Hashem designed that for one reason, so we should enjoy it. Bite into an apple and say, I get it. And Hashem made the cellular world brittle, so I should break into it so it should get that crunch and that flavor and that taste. And when you study this world, you'll see so many features that Hashem put in the world for us to enjoy. So why don't we enjoy it? The answer is we're dead on the inside. The Yaivet says, Shira Malos Beshuv Hashem when we return to Zion, when we return to Yerushalayim, <clears throat> Mashiach comes, Ayinu Kecholmim will be like dreamers. He says, you know what that means? When you're asleep, you're sound asleep. He says we are one sixtieth alive today. Our joy isn't joy. Our happiness isn't happiness. The food that we eat, the smells that we smell, and the existence that we are involved in is not life. It's barely just existing. And that's assuming that you don't have a Twitter account, that you don't have Facebook, that you're not spending your life glued to your palm. Glued to your palm. Everyone today is so busy. I can't reach a single human being. I cannot call a single human being and get them on the phone. And I know they want to talk to me because when they call, oh, Rabbi Shah, I'm sorry, I missed the call. So why don't you answer it? Well, I'm very busy. And I'm very impressed with what you're busy with. And today, people are busier than ever on the face of the planet. Doing what? Oh, updating my Facebook page, watching to see whether... Oh, wow, you had raisins and oatmeal before you went to the gym? Wow, i really like to know that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thank, no, very important things. So <clears throat> Facebook allows you to really be in other people's lives and really be a part of them. Would you like to know what Facebook allows you to do? Rashi says, an Ani is a poor person. If you're going to be exposed to 1,500 media messages a day, which the average U.S. citizen is, 1,500 advertisements a day, and then explain to you what you need, what you need, what you need, what you need, guess what? You're going to be hungry. You're going to need more, never be satisfied, need the next, need the next, and what you have won't bring you any joy. But that's an Ani, that's a poor person. Rashi explains that there's something called an Evion. An evion is worse than an uni. You see, an uni has things. He can own a home. He might have clothing. He doesn't have money, but he's got lots of stuff. 
An Evion is destitute. Someone who has nothing, zero, no money, no home, no car, no clothes, destitute down and out. Would you like to know what happens if you spend just enough time on social media? Given notice that the selfies are always smiling. Ah, here I am in Disney with my beautiful kids all behaving so well. Here I am finishing shots. Here I am here. Everyone on Facebook, everyone on social media only posts these smiling pictures of their successful life and things going wonderful. And you look at this one and that one and that one and that one and that one and you realize my life stinks. He's in Disneyland and I got to be at work. She's doing this and I can't, oh my, my life stinks. And it's not enough that you're being bombarded by 1,500 advertising messages a day telling you how much you need. You spend hour after hour inundated by messages and visions of what you could be, what should be, how happy you should be, how happy you're not. And guess what? You're going to be miserable. My friends, we don't understand it. We don't recognize it. We don't even see it. But every once in a while, it's important to open your eyes and say the words, I get it. Life as we're leading it now is not the way it's supposed to be. Human beings are supposed to have a simcha sachayim, joy, happiness. There's supposed to be a tremendous fulfillment. I'm supposed to be satisfied with what I have, satisfied with my house, happy with my car, happy with my spouse. That creep, that bum. How many women? Just this week I had a woman. I can be happy with him. You know, she goes, yeah. And then you find out that she made him all of those things. And when he wasn't all of those <clears throat> creepy things that she described, she also didn't like him. Oh, see. Uh-huh. <clears throat> My friends, what I'm sharing with you is a fundamental concept. You're supposed to open the newspapers and say what I'm looking at is abnormal. What I'm looking at is deviant, is decadent, is destructive. You're supposed to look and see a human race in utter misery, and you're supposed to say, I get it. That's why we need Mashiach. You see, Mashiach comes, every human being understands the purpose of life. Every human being understands I'm here to grow, and there's a huge, huge, deep satisfaction from exactly that. I see Hashem here, and I recognize the value of my accomplishments, and there's a joy, an inner glow. Wow, let's accomplish, let's do. A fellow called me up this week with a a very difficult predicament, very, very difficult Shiloh. He's making a bar mitzvah for his son, and he invited a couple, and the couple, the wife says she's only coming if she brings her son. Her son's about six or seven years old. So what's the problem? Bring the son. What's the big deal? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> when this boy was one years old, now again, they're orthodox. Just let's get perspective over here. From couple. <clears throat> when this boy was one years old, <clears throat> the woman decided that it's clear <clears throat> that he is a she. <laughs> and since he is a she trapped, in a he's body, the mother has been doing everything since one to allow she to come out. Flurries and bows and dresses and everything. And they want to bring the boy, whatever, it, to the bar mitzvah. And he's, it is six years old now. And the wife of the person who's making the bar mitzvah says, I don't want that at my son's bar mitzvah. What do I do, Rabbi? What do I do? Do you hear what I'm saying? It has gone so far off that people within the... All right, anyway, listen. My point really is a very simple one. You're supposed to at some point wake up and get it. At some point you're supposed to wake up and realize that life as we're leading it now is not the way it's supposed to be. 
life as we're leading it in this mad rush of doing and acquiring and running and just nothing, nothing in Simcha Sakai, nothing in being focused isn't the way Hashem wants it. Should you work? Yes. But more than anything, you should realize that we're not going to stop it. We're not going to change it. There's only one hope. And that is we dominate to Hashem, end it, enough. We've been here almost 2,000 years. It's so long that we forgot what humanity is supposed to look like. <clears throat> we forgot what life is supposed to look like. Hashem, please end it. Let us get out. Let us leave and let us be free. <clears throat> I think what this Gemara <clears throat> is sharing with us... Well, let's see how cool. I think what this Gemara is sharing with us is a fundamental principle. <clears throat> when Hashem <clears throat> finally brings Mashiach, the entire world will gather, and there'll be a hespid, <clears throat> a bitter, bitter eulogy. Everyone gathered, <clears throat> and everyone there crying. The Sadiqim <clears throat> cry because they see this powerful, powerful mountain. <clears throat> they remember, as Rashi explains, the amount of pain, trouble, worries, and issues that that Sutton caused them during their lifetime. And because of that, they cry bitter, bitter tears. The Rishayim cry as well, but for a very different reason. They see the thin thread. When the Yitzhahara first comes to you the first time, he offers you whatever it is. Could you have resisted? Easily. Could you have said no? Wouldn't have been a problem. <clears throat> but you didn't, and time after time, it became more habitual, it became more of your nature, and before you know it, you're tied up with a rope to that chair you can't escape. <clears throat> but in that blazing moment of clarity, the Rishayim get it, they understand with absolute clarity <clears throat> how much they fell prey. They ruined their life. <clears throat> they ruined their life and ask anyone who's involved in any sort of habit how happy they are. They're not... <clears throat> And that's when they realize it. And I want to end with one last thought. You know what the Marsha says? The Marsha says, I can't agree with Rashi's version. It can't be that the tzaddikim cry because they remember the pain, because it doesn't make sense. Maybe they could feel some agony, but it can't possibly be that they cry because then they remember all their memories. And you know how the Marsha learns this Gemara? Marsha says the Sadiqim cry because they realize that they lost their best friend. At that moment of understanding, they realize the importance of the Yetzirah, they realize its significance, and they begin crying bitter, bitter tears. Why? Because their best friend is gone. And you know what the Marsha is saying? The Sutton is given one job in life to challenge you, to demand of you, to push you just a little bit more, kind of like a coach who knows exactly your limits, knows exactly what you can lift, knows exactly how far you can go, and he's always pushing you a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And you ever notice that just when one issue in life got settled and taken care of, suddenly something else happens, and just when that issue gets settled, suddenly it's one thing after another after another. It's not by accident, it's not coincidence, but we don't get it. We look at these troubles and these challenges. Oy! And what we don't realize is that that's what makes us into what we are. What the tzaddikim see at that moment, <clears throat> says the Masha, is a clarity, an understanding. <clears throat> their best friend in the world, the Sutton, whose job it was to push them a little bit more, <clears throat> challenge them a little bit more. Yes, there was pain. <clears throat> yes, there was 
things they have to go through, but they now understand that who they are for eternity was largely shaped by that person. May Hashem allow it that this should be the final, final, last Tishabov, and the Gula come immediately. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.